All right. Well, this morning we are continuing our look at the historic faith. We are, as you remember, look, using the Apostles' Creed as a map. We're not so much studying the Creed as we are using it as an indication of what that early church was saying, um, what was being determined and sort of teased out as the church leaders got together and debated and thought through the implications of what had happened in Jesus, what it, what it meant about God, what it meant for this man, Jesus, uh, and what it means for the world and for all of us living on this side of Jesus. What, what do we do with this, this tremendous thing that has happened uh, in and through Jesus? And so as we come today to this part of the creed, we come to the second section, second line of that first phrase. We've looked at, we believe, we looked at that two weeks ago and, and talked about how this is a faith. What we're making are faith claims that we would like, especially as modern people, to have definitive proof. But ultimately, what we're talking about is not something that can be proven in the way we want to, scientifically or even philosophically. Um, that God is, of course, over and above and beyond our complete comprehension. And so why would we really honestly even think that we could do that? That what the creed calls us to realize and what the early church was saying is that we believe. And we talked about how when you step into the light, when you step into that belief, you find all sorts of reasons and your own personal proof as you experience the work of God, as you experience his hand in your life, as you experience uh, the comfort that he provides, you experience the purpose that he gives to you. You find that proof. It's just not the proof that our modern world rests on. Okay, um, And so we're talking about a belief in God. And last week we talked about God as the Father and the Almighty, that he is over and above and that he is also Father, and that was a unique claim of the early church. And then today we come to the second line, which is uh, describing God the Father Almighty, who is creator of heaven and earth. And so we're going to use this phrase or this passage from John, um, which we have looked at before. Uh, but <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> um, and it reads, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. And so this is, as we mentioned, is when we talked about John, a rehearsal or a callback to the Genesis narratives. But this is a particularly Christian spin on the Genesis narrative. Because, of course, in those first two chapters of Genesis in which we get the two, two stories, we don't read explicitly about Jesus, about the Word, about the second person of the Trinity. And so this is the church, John, as a representative of the church, the speaker of the gospel, um, a Christian interpretation or twist or addition to the Genesis narrative in which we identify Jesus, the Word, the well, Jesus, of course, is the enfleshment of the Word, but the eternal Word, the second member of the Trinity, as the creative force through which God spoke. Okay? Um, and so we're obviously talking about creator in heaven and earth. We have before, back in August, talked about those Genesis narratives. We're not going to belabor them again today. Um, but I will just remind you that in that conversation, we were talking about creational monotheism. So it was the belief that Israel had that the church has inherited that there is one God, monotheism, one, one mono mean, one theism mean God, one God, and he is the creator God. And we talked in that conversation about the many other stories that were circulating in the time about how the world came into being. And all of them, without fail, were telling stories of deities or gods or forces that were in opposition. So they were good and they're evil, or in the case of um, some of the gods, they were just 
fighting one another for power. And it was through that struggle and that strife that the world somehow was created. And depending on which story uh, you listen to, it was through the blood of a, a God who was killed or the mere struggle brought about the, the creation of the world, the force that was inherent in that. Um, but the church was making this counterclaim, in, or not the church, but Israel made this counterclaim in their stories, which was not so much about the mechanics of God creating, which is what we've made it about in our modern world, but it was about a theistic understanding that there is a good creator God that stands behind it. It wasn't strife and fights and violence and death that caused the world. It was instead a loving and good, good God who out of his loving will created. Okay? And this was, this was the fundamental teaching that came out of it, which because we have made it about six days of creation, we've, we've missed. We don't understand that that was, the, that was the point. The point was to tell us that there was a good and loving God that created the world, and this is a good place. This was essentially his temple, that God created the world as a temple and puts his image bearer in the temple, right? It, within any other religion, you have a temple, and then there's an idol, the, the image of the, that God in that temple. That's what the, the earth was. Earth was the temple, we were the image. And God would come in and dwell with his people in that temple. And so it was a story that told us about the goodness of God, the transcendence of God, but also the goodness of the created order. Okay? And it stood in opposition to all of those other stories and uh, narratives that would tell the world that the, the world was evil, the product of violence. As we come to John's twist and his addition and the Christian confession around monotheism, we come to what um, is creational or Christian creational monotheism. And this is obviously a particularly Christian, a Jesus-centric claim around the creation. Um, and it has tremendous impacts. And one of the reasons we're spending so much time on this today, it would be easy just to skip by this and say, God's creator, move on to the next part, right? He created everything. But there is a fundamental understanding and claim that was being made by those early Christians as they inherited the stories from uh, Israel and Judaism about God and about the creation that we have in large part missed or, or tainted or skewed. And we're going we're gonna to dig into that today. But much like the, the original creation stories, there was, of course, a culture and a, and a context in which these claims by the early church were being made. And we're going to fire through these quickly today, but it's going to give you a picture of what, what the other stories were out there. And it's going to look much like uh, what we talked about with the Genesis narratives months ago. Um, and if you weren't with us that, it's August, I have the date. If you go back in the, the Facebook feed, it's August 16th. You can, have, you can sit down and listen to that conversation. It's a long and winding conversation about uh, the creation narrative and what it meant in the context, um, which I would encourage you to do because it gives you the Jewish background for what we're not talking about today. But the predominant uh, religion or philosophy or thinking at the time was polytheism and pantheism. That was the idea that they were a multitude of gods, and they were in and around everything. Um, as people were looking at the world, they saw pain and suffering and evil and strife and disease and sickness and death and all the stuff that was bad. And so they were looking for answers as to why this was going on. And in the polytheistic or pantheistic tradition, that was answered by positing multiple gods. 
So if you know anything about mythology, you know that the weather changes because there is a goddess who in the fall dies. And then during the winter, she's dead. And in the springtime, she rises again. And it is her death and resurrection in an annual cycle that causes fall and winter and the death, you know, the death of the world, essentially, and then the resuscitation of the world as she rises again. And so it was her life cycle that coincided with the seasons. Um, if the wind started blowing and it blew hard, it was because a god over here was upset and wanted to make it blow. If it stopped, it was because another god over here made him or her stop, and he was more powerful, and so now the wind stops. If one nation rises up and conquers another nation, well, it's because their gods are more powerful than the gods of the conquered nation. Right? So everything was explained because there was one or more, and in many cases, a multitude of deities that stood behind it that were making it happen. All right? And so they were capricious, they were sort of random and whimsical. One day they're happy, the other day they're mad, and you never knew which way, the, literally, the, the wind was going to blow, and which God was going to be more powerful today. And you, so the world was a mess. It was chaotic. You could predict nothing. And it was all up to the whimsical fancy of the gods or goddesses that were in control that day. Okay? So that's the way they explained the world. But this chaotic world was necessarily hostile. And so there were obviously sacrifices that were made. You were constantly trying to appease the gods so that your god and the gods that influenced you were happy with you so that today they're not in a bad mood, right? They're like the grumpy old dad right, that I sometimes am, right? And I wake up and you just, I'm just, I need my coffee. Don't talk to me. You know, you might get that god on any given day, all right? And things could not go well for you. And so you were constantly trying to appease these gods. But as a result, the world was seen as hostile and evil. And there were, in the first century, a number of philosophies and other religions that sort of came up in order to deal with that, in some ways to explain it. But the, the question became, okay, what do we do about that? And Plato, who lived several hundred years prior, um, had started the Platonic School of Philosophy. And his answer to it was, well, not really to worry about it. The, the, the goal of human life was not to necessarily deal with the struggle and the pain and the suffering. It was rather sit around and just contemplate truth. And so this is where we get um, Aristotelian and Platonic schools. In Athens, there were academies and courtyards where you would just literally go and sit and you would think and you would argue and you would talk and you would philosophize all day long. And that was the point of life, to get nearest to truth, to think about and philosophize about truth. So that was the, the point of life. And there was, a, I have up there, Neoplatonism, because there was a Neoplatonic movement that in the first few centuries, as the church is developing, was gaining steam. So was, that idea was coming back around. And in fact, Augustine, who was in the fourth century, one of the profound thinkers of the church, was a Neoplatonic thinker. He was in that school and came out of it and used a lot of Platonic thought to explain Christianity. And, and some of that was great, and some of it missed the mark. Um, <laughs> Mike's laughing because he knows some of that story. Um, and, and we are reeling, to some extent, still from some of the things that Augustine said, because the church, in some ways by virtue of Augustine, but through other avenues as well, has drank way too deeply from the school of Platonic philosophy. Okay? Um, we've mentioned some of that in the past. One of the other schools of philosophy at the time were the Stoics. And if you familiar with that term, Stoic, Stoicism. Um, this is where it comes from. We've mentioned them, I know, on one other occasion. But their whole answer to it is just not to care. All right? 
So the goal of life was to get to a point where you are unaffected by the events of the world. It doesn't matter if it's good or it's evil. You're flat. You have no response to it. All right. It was to be apathetic. And so if there was a birth in the family, a new life, a time that would be joyous, you were flat. If someone died and, it, you know, most, and most people would suffer and, and grieve, you didn't respond. Right? The goal was to get to a point where nothing affected you. And that was the highest virtue of life, was to be stoic. Um, so basically, don't, don't care. The Epicureans, on the other hand, said that there may be a God, but if he is, if, it, if there is a God, he was simply just a creator and he went off and he has nothing to do with our world anymore. And so we're stuck with this evil, broken, nasty world and we can't control it, right? So we're not God, so we can't actually do anything about it. So just enjoy yourself. So they were, in some ways, sort of hedonistic. They were just all about the answer to life suffering is just make more enjoyment. Drink more, party more, right? Just make yourself merry. And so that was the Epicurean um, answer. So you can't control it, so you might as well just enjoy yourself. And then there were the Gnostics. And this is obviously something that we probably are familiar with. Most of you have heard of the Gnostics or the Gnostic Gospels. There's been a renewed interest in these over the last couple decades. Um, and there, there have been questions, why don't you, as the church, accept things called the Gnostic Gospels? Well, the reason is, there are many different schools of Gnosticism, but Gnosticism basically was teaching that the, result, the world was a result of a sin or an error that happened in the spiritual world and was therefore not good. It was evil, all right? And humans, humans were what they called sparks of the divine power. So we were some like little vestige or spark of the divine being that exists. And we were trapped in this world, in these bodies. And the whole purpose of us in this world, of our life, is to escape this body, to escape this world, and to return to the source, right? So to return to the divine power. And so it all became about escaping this world back to, back to heaven, or what they would call heaven. And what they did was they, they took the Jesus narrative, and they used a lot of the language and the number of the stories, and they built these things called the Gnostic Gospels to support their theology, using the, the phraseology and the terminology of the church in order to convince the church of their theology. So we would reject a Gnostic gospel because the fundamental theology that stands under it is whack, right? It's, it's, just, it's just bogus, right? It's not Christian at all. Even though their gospels purport to tell the story of Jesus, it is a different story altogether. Um, and so I, I just spent a little more time there because I know that there, some of you may have gotten questioned or maybe you wonder why don't we accept things like the gospel of Peter or some of these other Gnostic gospels. It's because they're not the church. They're not the truth. They are uh, just trying to use our language in order to tell their story. All right, so they're not part of the church at all. Persian dualism. This one is actually pretty important, and we're going to come back and you know, explain, explain exactly why this is important. But they believe that there were two eternal, coexistent, and equal and opposite forces of good and evil. Okay, and it was a struggle. This looks very much like the other ancient Near Eastern cultures that were around the time the Genesis stories were being told. Right? There was a violent struggle between good and evil, and it was through that struggle and that clash that the world is created. And so the world comes out of violence, it comes out of turmoil, and what it means to be saved, what salvation would look like for the world, is to have that separated back out so that all the good goes over here, all the evil goes over here, and those of us who are good can persist in goodness, in light, 
and all the evil is over here, okay? Um, that is not Christianity. I'm going to talk a little bit about that as we go forward. And then the last thing let's talk about is Roman religion. Rome is, of course, the power of the time. So they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So whereas all these other thoughts and philosophies and, and religions were intent on explaining why the world is broken and how to get out of it or how to rise above it or how to not care about it, right? The Roman religion, which was pantheistic and polytheistic, was interested and had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo in saying this was actually good, that the violence that Rome brought upon the, the nations and peoples that it conquered was a good thing and that the world as it ought to be looks like the Roman Empire. And in fact, they went so far as to make the emperor a god himself. All right. And so it was, this is the sort of the cultural background in which the early church is inheriting the, the story, the creation story of the Jews, of Israel, re-understanding it in light of Jesus, what he's taught in his life and his teaching and his person and the revelation of God that he provides to us, and then trying to go into the world to make a godly Christian theistic claim that stands in opposition to all the other stories. Remember when we talked about Paul, particularly his letters to Timothy and Titus, he makes this claim and he says, make sure you keep your doctrine pure. And we've talked at length about how Paul in all of his letters was, was trying very hard to make sure that the influence of the world, these, all of these other philosophies and theologies and ideas don't taint, skew, tarnish, and change the gospel, the doctrine. That's why he says, keep your doctrine sound. And so the whole purpose of us doing this is going back to these early centuries saying, what was that message that Paul transmitted? What was it that Paul wants to keep pure? Because in many ways, we go through our lives just thinking we're Christians, which I'm not saying we're not, but we just inherit all the stories and we don't stop to think, hey, is this Plato? Or is this Epicurus? Or is this a Stoic philosophy? Or is it a Persian philosophy? And in lots of ways, we have ways of thinking about God in the world in which they are. And we don't reflect on that to say, oh wait, that's not actually what the church was saying. And we're doing that today, all right? That's what, today is going to be a reframing of how we think about good and evil and the world around us, okay? In light of Jesus and what God has said through Jesus and through his scripture. And so we're coming now to the creational counterclaim. And the, the claim that Christians were making was Inherited, as I said, from the Jewish tradition, they get those, that scripture, right? Jesus acknowledges and uses scripture. Paul talks about all scripture being God-breathed or spirit-breathed. Um, so the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures are valid for the church, all right? So all of those stories come into the church, um, and the Genesis narratives, of course, are among them. And so we've inherited that tradition, uh, and, and that tradition, as we've said a number of times already today and before, is that creation was made by a good and loving God. It was the counterclaim of those original stories, and it continues to be the counterclaim that the church is making, and one that this is where we have, in large measure, sort of missed the mark. We have, we have inherited a misunderstanding. Because a good and loving God um, created the world, and we know that, and, and the church knows that, the early Christians know that, in a new way, because they have now met Jesus. Right? Before, there were prophets, there were uh, judges. God would act in the world here and there. He would come in a burning bush, or he would send a plague. He would anoint a king. And so God was active, 
But God is now present and active in our world in a new way as the word has been embodied in Jesus. And so that gives us fresh and new revelation into who God is. And so the early church is looking at Jesus and saying, this is who God is. And then mapping that onto this creation story, which is telling us that there is a good God, which we now see manifest in Jesus. Jesus, as John tells us, is actually the eternal word who was the one, the force, the power by which and through which God creates, right? God mandates the son, the eternal son, the eternal word is the force which actually creates, John tells us, right? And so we've seen this, and now what we're claiming is that as the Genesis tells, story tells us, everything that God makes is good, right? On the, on the last day, after God's created everything, he sits back. On every day, he says, this is good. And on the last day, he looks back and he says, this is very good. God created goodness. Everything that God created was good, right? And this is the claim that, that the church is making, counter to all of the other stories in which they look at the earth and the world and say, this is an evil place that was created out of turmoil and it just needs to be destroyed or escaped or risen above or just thought through in a way and not interacted with. The Christian claim is that this is God's good creation, just like the Genesis story. And the, the Jews were saying, this is God's temple. This was his creation. It is good. All right. Does that mean it's not broken and sullied? No, it is. That, that's also a fundamental claim, right? That what was good has been tainted by sin. Okay. But let's think through this for one minute. If God created everything, as the stories tell us, Right, that's what it means for God to be creator. He's created everything. Monotheism tells us that it is the one God above all else. Before God spoke and created, there was nothing but God. So God has created it. He's claimed that it is all good. Right? What is the implication then for this thing we call evil? Did God create evil? Free will. A big part of this conversation, Right? big part of this conversation. And that is ultimately the, the claim of the church, right? Um, but the, what we need to really understand, and I, I want to, I'm spending a little bit of time here, is to understand in what the early church is saying, and church father after father and mother and, and you know, monk in the desert, they, they, over and over they're making this claim. There's no such thing as evil. Right? Everything in the world is created by God. Right? Everything. Everything. The, the, another version of the Apostles' Creed that gets recited, particularly in Eastern, says God created everything seen and unseen. Right? In our version, it says heaven and earth. Everything. Matter. And now as we get into physics and, and things we know about quantum physics, matter and antimatter, it's all created by God. And God sat back and said it's all good. Everything is good. What, what the early church is saying it's certainly not that there isn't such thing that we would look at the world and say is evil. Of course they know that. Remember, of course, they're being fed to lions, right? They are keenly aware of death and suffering and evil and the pain that is present in the world, the ways in which the world is broken, okay? Um, we've talked before about one of the, the, the witnesses of the church was the fact that they walked through the streets when there were plagues and they picked people off, off the floor. I mean, if there isn't natural evil. I mean, if it's disease and death and suffering, it exists and they know it. Okay. But what they're saying is evil is not an existential category. So go back to that Persian philosophy. There were two equal and opposite forces, one evil and one good. 
that warred and brought the world about. What, the, what Christians are saying is not evil. There's no, such, there's no such force as evil. Everything is good. And so what we see and we name evil is not a thing that was created. There's not an impersonal or personal force out there, despite the fact that the New Testament, and we will acknowledge that personifies evil, right? It's spoken about in places as which it, it is evil. But what the church has been saying is that it doesn't actually exist, okay? What evil is, is not existence, but non-existence. And the phrase is, evil, it's evil as privation, okay? And so it, the, the, the favorite metaphor in the early church is, um, evil is a lack of goodness in the same way that darkness is a lack of light, okay? And so when we exert our free will and we turn our back on God, it isn't that there's some evil thing that has made us do that. It's that we have decided to walk out of the light and by default, by removing God and goodness, we're left with what we call evil, which is brokenness. If God is goodness in existence, then not God is evil and non-existence. Okay? And so evil is not an existential category. And what that means is it doesn't exist as a thing. It's not a created thing. It's rather a moral category. And it's our fault. Right? There's not, now, certainly there's stories about Satan as an evil force in the world, but Satan himself is presumably an angel that exerted some will on his own and turned his back and then came to Adam and Eve and, and convinced them to do the same thing, to exert their will and defy God. And so the early church's claim is that the world is fundamentally good. Because God created everything, and everything that God created is good, right? People are fundamentally good. God created you. You bear his image. Now, is it broken? Is it tarnished? Have things gone off track? Absolutely. There is death. There is pain. There is suffering. We cause a lot of it. Some of it's natural. There's disease and sickness and tornadoes and hurricanes. Condos fall in, right? Which... We certainly can point to human actors in that instance, but hurricanes, nobody calls a hurricane. But all of that exists not as a positive evil force in the world. What the church is saying is that that all exists because the world and human actors are separate from God. There has been goodness removed from the equation, and what you're left with is pain and suffering and evil and death. Right? So evil is a deficiency, it's a lack. It's the moral problem, not an existential one, as we said. And it's a serious problem. It has devastating ramifications, but the world, as the Jews claimed and the Christians continue to claim, is inherently good. All right? And so what are the implications for that claim? Well, as we look at the world, we see God's creation. Right? There has been a theology in the church which has said that in the coming age, God is going to rapture us. He's going to pick us up. He's going to take us up into the sky somewhere. He's going to burn the whole place up. He's going to create something new and he's going to plop us back down in it. Okay? That's, that's not the story. Right? That is an aberrant theology. Right? We can talk about rapture theology another time, but uh, that's, a, that's another linguistic issue. But the point is, what, what, that, what that does is says, okay, well, this world is going to burn up. If it's doomed for destruction, what, what does it matter? Let's just rape and pillage the earth. 
let's strip mine all we want, right? Who cares if that species dies out? It's all going to die anyway, right? And we're going to be given something new. But that's not God's claim. That's not from the very beginning of the Genesis story, picked up by the church and proclaimed in this creed when they say that God is the creator of heavens and earth and the things that they said around that is the claim that this is God's good creation. And it has gone off track, but is not doomed for destruction. It is fated for restoration, redemption, reconciliation. God is fixing his creation. He's not destroying it, right? And then we go back all the way to the Genesis and we, we see what is essentially the first commandment was that Adam and Eve care for the world. That's our job, to care for the world. This is God's world. It is good. We must see God's goodness, his presence, his activity in the world. And our call is to partner in order to make it better. And are we going to make it perfect? No, that will come at the end. But we are tasked as Christians, and we declare as we read through the creed and read that God is the creator of the world, we are acknowledging that this is his creation. This is his temple. Would you walk into this church and graffiti the wall behind me? How many people would do that to a church? Right? No. This world is God's church, his temple, his residence, and our residence. We ought to care for it, right? We ought to see the world not as an evil place, as all of these other philosophies were saying, right? It comes from a good and loving God. It is worth being cared for because ultimately God will restore it. It is his creation. And then the implications it has for humanity, which we have hinted at, and I have sort of alluded to time and time again, is that we too are good, right? We have from the Reformation this phrase called total depravity. How many people have heard that one? And what do you think, what does that mean? This is actually important. So this is why we're talking about, this is, this, is, this is the crux of what we're talking about today. What does total depravity mean? Yeah. So we have, he says, we have no ability to be good. That there is nothing within us that can will or desire any good. Does that sound like an early Christian confession? No. And interestingly, it's not actually what total depravity means either. That is absolutely the popular understanding of what total depravity means. When the church got together, the reformers got together, it was called the Synod of Dort in the 17th century, and they developed this doctrine. I mean, first of all, it's in the 17th century, which says to me, let's think about this one for a minute, because it comes along 1,700 years later, okay, or 1,600 years later. So immediately... Think about it. Doesn't mean it's wrong, just think about it. But what they were saying was not necessarily that humans are completely incapable of doing any good. They knew that wasn't true. I mean, just look around the world. You see people of other faiths that don't know God. You see atheists doing great things, taking care of their neighbors, serving in pantries, clothing people. I mean, look at Gandhi. He wasn't a Christian. He was all about Jesus and Jesus' teachings, but he was not a Christian. He did not know the God that we claim to know. He was a great man. He did great things. Right? And there are plenty of instances of that happening throughout history. They're not claiming that everyone's incapable of doing good. That's not total depravity. Total depravity was the doctrine or the claim that all of us, we are in total affected by sin. All right? And so while we can do good, ultimately we will choose to turn our back at some point. Right? And the claim was, as a result of that, we cannot, without the help of God, turn towards God. Okay? That was the conclusion that they made. All right? But, so that's, kind of, that's the actual doctrine of total depravity. 
But the popular understanding is, is the popular understanding, and it's dangerous. It is this idea that we are evil, that you were born a baby, and you're evil. And only through the grace of God do you have any chance of being good at all. How many times have you heard a fire and brimstone preacher get up and scream that from the pulpit? Seen it on TV or been in a church where it's been said. That's heresy. Right? That runs counter to every statement that the church and the people of God, including Israel, throughout all time have said. It's just not true. God is a good and loving God. And he has created this world and each of us. And each of us, we're told, bear his image. Does that mean that we are perfect? Absolutely not. Because each of us, we're also told, have fallen short. We each willfully turn our back at times. We shun the light and we find ourselves evil. Doing evil action, right? It's a moral category. It is a category of our will in which we decide We'd rather not pay attention to God or glorify God or do what God said. We'd rather do what we want to do and glorify ourselves. And so we find ourselves in this position over here. All right? And that will and that desire, arguably, much of the church actually agrees with the fundamental true understanding of the doctrine of total depravity that we, are all, we all do that. Like, that's not news to anybody, right? You know you've made decisions that aren't the best. Me too. Right? That's, not, that's really not that earth-shattering. If we're all honest with ourselves, we do that. But the claim of the church, the claim of the creator God, is that at core, you are fundamentally created good. You bear the image of your maker. You were placed in a good world to commune with him. And we've mucked it up, but that doesn't change the fundamental reality. The claim that the church has always made until we've got it wrong recently that we are good, God is good. Now, are we legally good in a way that like, we can earn our salvation? No, that's obviously not the case. But what we're saying is that when God looks at the world, it's good. It's broken, but it's good. And it's worth saving. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. That God created a beautiful, good, wonderful world with beautiful, good, wonderful creatures among which sit us. That we turned our back, we've messed it up, but we are not completely evil and doomed for destruction. Nor is the world. Instead, God looks at us and still sees goodness, still sees the thing that he created, the thing that he loves, and he loves so much that he would come himself and die to redeem it. Right? He loves you. You are so good that he would come and die to get you back rather than destroy you. If you were purely evil, he would just he'd wipe you off the face of the earth. God and evil don't mix. Because the definition of evil is not God, right? If you were purely evil, God's got nothing to do with you. He can't. 
The gospel is that, yeah, you, you, you mess it up. We all do. We've all sinned and fallen short. We've all been hateful to others. We've all been self-centered. We've all sought after our own glory and our own wealth and prosperity and shunned what God would tell us to do. Yeah, we all do. God still loves you. There's still goodness in you. And more importantly, for our conversations with the church, as those who live in that reality, God still loves the world. God still looks at our neighbors. God still looks at the drunk and the thief, the abuser, and still sees good. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of turning backs on God. Absolutely. But there's still good in there. And what the doctrine of the creation teaches us, tells us, and we must recover, is that in everyone is the image of God. In everyone, there's redeemable goodness. And as people of God who go into the world to proclaim the gospel, we must be willing to see others that way. No one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond restoration. No one is beyond being brought out of the darkness back into the light. Everyone is good in the way they were made. Not categorically, morally good. They're certainly evil. So hang with me on that term, right? We are all sinful and evil in that way, but we are all created by good and therefore good and worth redemption. He wouldn't have come and hung on a cross if it weren't true. He made each and every one of us. And so as his children, as those who would stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we are declaring that this is God's good creation. And we have stepped into the light. We now partner with God to go into the world and are on the mission of restoration. It's a fixer-upper, right? So grab a hammer, grab a nail, let's go get to work. Right? What's the answer to darkness? Turn on the light. What's the answer to evil? Go do good. Shine God's light and love on the darkness. It will flee. Somebody's evil, hateful. Does it do Does it do well? Does it work to yell and scream at them and fight with them? No. What works is loving them, winning them back to the light. It's what God does on the cross and it's what he calls us to do. Go love people. Shine the light. Shine goodness. Bring goodness back to the world of darkness. That's our call. It's what it means to be people of the creator God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you are a good and almighty God. We thank you that it is you that has created this world in which we live. It is not some capricious, warring God. It is not a battle between good and evil. It was an act of supreme goodness and love. It was willed by you, spoken by you, brought forth to the power of the eternal word. God, we ask that you would grant us that understanding. 
And in doing so, give us eyes for this world, which are your eyes, so that we might go forth from this place and see brokenness and hurting, but beneath it all, goodness. And then in doing so, we may carry to the world grace and mercy and love, knowing that it is only in doing that that darkness will flee, that those who are broken, those who do not know you, those who behave in ways they ought not, can be restored and redeemed through the work of your Son. So God, we ask that you fill us with your Spirit, that you indwell us, that we would become less and you would become more so that we can rightly operate and talk and philosophize and and engage in theology conversations and go about our daily life, Lord, in a way that is honoring to you, in a way that is a witness to the goodness that you are and therefore the goodness of the world which you have created. Make us your hands and feet. We ask this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen.